rabbit trail today. It loosely ties in with 1 John, but it does enough for me. So there you go. And if we want to vote on it later, feel free. We're looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 15. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. So John has been talking in 1 John. John, we've been looking at talking about knowing Christ. All right, How are we to know him? How do we know that we know him? How do we know we're in him? And he brings up things walking in the light. Uh, We started talking about the power that's involved to change a life. And how does that power work when John starts explaining that in 1 John? And so that's what got me on this rabbit trail because I was looking at Matthew and his life changed. His life changed like that. Now I know what that can do then is it can make people feel guilty. Because you could be sitting there going, my life didn't change like that. It changed more like that. Well, that's okay. Everybody's different. This is just one example. We have other examples of lives that took longer to change in Scripture. So that's fine. But I want to look at this because what changes a life? It has to be a power. And so the first point here that I want you to see is this, the power of purpose. The power of purpose. There's a power in that. And, and that, comes, that comes from uh, in this passage. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. All right? So let's just remember a little bit about tax collectors in that time. Okay? The, the Jewish nation was being ruled by a conqueror. They were being ruled by the Romans. Right? And then the Romans wanted to collect taxes. That's how they furthered the expansion, paid for the expansion of their, of their empire. And so oftentimes what they would do is they would delegate tax collection to local people because local people knew the place best. And people would bid and they would get the right to collect taxes for a certain area. Now, you have to remember, back then, tax collectors were not well-loved like they are now. It's just not the same thing as it is now. And because it was a foreign power oppressing the people, collecting the taxes, and because they were using local Jewish people to help them, those local Jewish people were considered traitors. They were traitors to their country. Now you think about that. Matthew is a traitor to his country. The writer of this book is that Matthew. And he puts that in. You know, I often think about, uh, sometimes I think about how I would do it if I was the one who God wanted to write some scripture. I would not have done that. I would have said maybe something, Jesus went along the way and he saw a man named Bob sitting. And, and Bob was called Bob the Magnificent. Follow me, he told him. And Bob got up and followed him because he was magnificent. See, I, I, I think I would put something like that. Or, or maybe it'd be, you know, a little humble. I wouldn't just say magnificent. I'd say Bob the almsgiver. 
or, you know, Bob the, the Wonderful One, something like that. But Matthew, he just lays it out there. He says, Matthew the tax collector, which is a way of saying Matthew the traitor. And he's talking about himself. He's being incredibly honest. And he's talking about himself. And here we see something. There is a call. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. You know, the Bible says that we have all been called. In Romans 8, 28, I think we have it there on the uh, overhead. In Romans 8, 28, he says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, everyone loves the idea that God will work everything out to be good. But, but there's a little part of this that we have to remember. For those who are called according to his purpose. We have to be very careful here and remember that. Also, we have to remember one person's call is different than others. One person's experience can be different from others. And, and I mentioned that. In, in, chapter, in chapter 3 of the book of John, he talks to Nicodemus, and, and, and he says, you know, you must be, and it, it seems to be very quick. In chapter 4, it seems to be, Jesus is saying you must be born again like that. In chapter 4, the woman at the well, he takes more time. He's a little less direct. He's more gentle with her. In chapter 9, he heals a man born blind, and it's not until later that he gives him the call. We also seem to see that as we look at Scripture, he gave multiple calls to his disciples. So don't get sidelined by one person's particular experience. It's different ways. But here's the theme. The theme is we all get called. And what is a call? It's a time in our life where we begin to sense that Jesus Christ needs to be central in our life. When you see that your relationship with him has been peripheral, and you begin to understand that nothing is more important than Jesus and what he is doing. And so you feel this, this, that you're being compelled to give him control and centrality in your life. And so we see this picture now. You see what happened. He says, follow me. Then, then we have this picture of they're going somewhere to eat. They're going to eat dinner together. And that's a huge thing in that day, in that culture. It's a huge thing. When you, you know, when you take someone home to eat your evening, evening meal, it allows them to become a central part of your life. So in that society, the perfect response to a call is to say, Jesus, come eat with me. Come to my house and eat with me. I'm allowing you in. You remember last week we talked a little bit about how Jesus said, these are my people. We looked at, the, we looked at the, you know, the genealogy, and Jesus was saying, these are my people, the good, the bad, all of them. They're my people. When you take someone into your home, especially in that culture, you're saying, you're, you're now part of my life. You're one of my people. And so I, I want you to see a picture. I got a picture here of how eating happened oftentimes in that culture. If you see, and this, this is an artist's putting together kind of the, the Last Supper. People reclined at the table. They didn't sit. They reclined. They tended to lean on their left arm. Sometimes if they had to reach, they'd roll over on their stomach and reach across the table, but then they'd go back to leaning on their left arm. And, and you will see, if you look at Scripture at meals, look at the Last Supper, all right? In the Last Supper, Jesus, John, it says John reclined on Jesus' bosom. What does that mean? Jesus was laying on his left side. John was laying on his left side right in front of Jesus. So when he wanted to say something to Jesus, he turned and he said something right, right across his chest. So that's how it was. What's interesting when you study the Last Supper is, like in this, oh, it's gone. There, it's back. Good. Is if you, if you look at one end of the table, that's, that's how they would place Jesus as the most important person there. John would be just, just uh, in front of him. Right behind him, 
would be the third most important person at the table. And those three people would share that part of the meal. And that was Judas. Jesus put Judas at a position of, you know, favor at his last supper. At his last supper. And then as you go around the table, it would be on the top all the way to the end. That would be the least important position. Can you see why? Because when you're laying on your left shoulder, everyone's behind you. So that would be the least important person. That would be the person generally who would wash feet. But what happened? Jesus washed all. The most important person washed the feet. You know, when we hear the story of the woman coming and anointing Jesus' feet, you see why their feet are so easy to get to? They're not under the table. Someone can just walk up and pour oil can an, and anoint the feet. So anyways, that just gives you just a little bit of an idea of what it would look like if, if, if you were invited to a home like that. This is what would happen. You would recline at a table. You would lay on your left arm because your right hand is the one you eat with. And you would become, in a sense, a part of the family. It would be a high degree of acceptance because of this. And when you in your life begin to sense that Jesus has to be the most important thing, the ultimate thing, and everything else takes a back seat, then you begin to realize that, okay, I, this is his call. My pager is going off right now. This is the call of Christ in my life. He's calling you. He's calling you. You may have already believed, but the key is what's priority in your life? What's, what are the most important things in your life? All right, so that's the power of, of a purpose. Now I want you to see the power of relationship, the, uh, the power of community. And that's in verses 10 and 11. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, it says, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, sinners, you see, is kind of in quotation marks. That's the way the translators are trying to emphasize that this is just a catch-all word for the worst people. This is the worst people. And, it, and the worst people can be whatever was defined as the worst people in that society. This is going to be the tax collectors. This is going to be prostitutes. This is going to be people who, who have low morals. This is going to be all the bad people. But it makes perfect sense. Think about it. Who hangs out with a traitor? All the bad people. Because they get together. They hang together. That's their, in a sense, their community. And the Pharisees say, why do you do this? What are they worried about? What are they worried about here? They're worried about contamination. That's what they're worried about. And, contam and contamination is all about proximity, right? If you come into contact with germs or viruses, you may be healthy. That other person who has all, they may be unhealthy. What happens? Does my healthiness rub off on people? Does someone who's got a bad cough, I come up and shake their hand? And, they, and, and then they touch their nose and they go, oh, I'm better. I must have caught your healthiness. Thanks. It doesn't work that way, does it? Right? Somebody, you see somebody walking up, go, <coughs> they go, hey, how are you? Like, no, no, no. I'm good. <laughs> Let's shake from a distance. Air high five. You know, why, why? Because unhealthy infects healthy. That's how it works in this life. That's the way it is. I came across not too long ago, um, um, it was, uh, shoot, I can't remember, I think it was the Atlantic Magazine, and they had a thing, a study was done in New York City. What, is, what are some of the most unhealthy places 
in New York City, germ-wise? What are the worst places? Well, I've been in New York City, and I'm going, the subway, for sure. And it wasn't the subway, because they actually clean their subways. It doesn't seem like very often to me, but they actually clean their subways. And the interesting thing was, one of the worst, mo most germy places in New York City was in the backseat armrest of a taxi cab. Because they were saying cab drivers never clean the back seat hardly. They clean the front seat because they're in it, but they don't clean the back seat. So this is just your tip. You go to New York, you get in a cab, slide to the middle, unclean, unclean. It's kind of biblical there when you do this. Repeat unclean. Or if you go with friends, you tell them, I'll sit in the middle. You guys can have the windows. You're welcome. You know, so you can be the nice person and not get sick. Right? So the Pharisees, they believe that's how it works spiritually. They believed how that, that was how it worked morally. If you hang with sick people, you're going to get sick. If you hang with sinners, you're going to become a sinner. And so they're looking at this going, Jesus is eating with the wrong people. He's coming into contact with people who don't obey the Mosaic law. People who cheated, people who lied, people who were involved in terrible things. Traitors. They were morally and spiritually corrupt people. And so their belief is, you will become corrupt by associating with them, Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is not to beat up the Pharisees, because they have a point, right? Because we have trouble seeing their point, because we come from a society that believes that you're the sum total of all the individual choices that you made, and we kind of tend to downplay the power of community in the development of character. That was a culture that totally believed community was a part of the de development of character. And so for them, meals were relational. Barriers came down at meals. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed, though, that that's still true with us? You sit and you eat with somebody, you are much more likely to begin to share things about yourself with them. There is something about the power of a shared meal this community that comes from it. Because relational has a lot to do with character formation. Whether we believe it's true or not, you tend to become like the people you spend the most relational time with, personal time, meals, things like that. When I think of the person that I am, for good or for bad, I can look back and see seminal points in my life where God used relationships to form me. When I first came to Christ, I started going to some Bible, studying, Bible studies and some meetings. And people might think, wow, that really impacted you. And it did, but not like you think. What happened was there was another gentleman who took me under his wing, and he spent time with me. And sometimes we studied the Bible, and sometimes we had prayer. But you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what I remember with him. I remember playing sports with him. I remember going and playing hockey with him. I remember doing things like that together, shooting hoops, eating together. I remember him taking me home to his house and eating dinner with him and his wife and doing stuff and sitting down afterwards. And it was life-changing for me. I will never forget him because he, he, he formed me. He gave me a desire to live for God. He fanned those flames. You know, one other time for me was when I went to seminary in grad school. It was an awesome time. I went to a very unique institution. There were some godly people there, and they taught me a lot. 
But you know what I really remember? What I really remember is between classes in the break room, sitting down and eating together with fellow students and going, do you agree with what he said? Why? And talking and stretching and arguing and pushing each other. I remember those times vividly. I remember some of the subjects that we talked about in those times. That shaped me tremendously because it was relational. I sat down, and, and, and we were eating, actually. It wasn't just that we were eating, but we sat down together, and, and, and we talked, and we stretched, and we pushed each other, and we, and we got in each other's faces at times and disagreed with each other. And it changed me. Because when you get a group of people involved relationally, they will push each other and change each other. This is what can form you. And especially in that society, who you eat with is so key. So it is not nuts to be careful who you eat with from the Pharisees' point of view. Look at all the dietary restrictions the Mosaic law put upon them. They were detailed about what they could and could not eat. And there were so many restrictions that you couldn't sit down and eat with somebody who didn't agree to all the same stuff that you agreed with. So you could never eat with a non-believer. It was impossible because they believed you'd be infected by the beliefs and the practices of these pagans. And so now Jesus comes and he turns everything upside down. He seems to ignore what makes you clean and unclean, and this infuriates the Pharisees, and it shocks them. And they're saying, you will become defiled. They're saying, you're going to become tainted because of this. And that's why, I mean, they're asking, why are you doing this? And Jesus says in verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus said, I'm coming here to heal. This is my purpose. And you know, for honest, we know we're sick. We struggle spiritually. We struggle psychologically. We struggle emotionally. We get angry. We get scared. We get anxious. We get divided. We get proud. We get humble and then become proud of being humble. We feel superior to some people. We, we feel inferior to others. We need a doctor for our souls. And so you need to realize that what he's saying in, the, in this con context of this passage, he's dealing with this, this, this idea of contamination if you have MRSA, an infection that is resistant to antibiotics, what do doctors do? If you've ever been in that, they, they quarantine you. They get you apart from everyone. Everyone wears masks and gloves and gowns because to, be, to become infected, your health will be overpowered. And that's what the Pharisees think. They think that purity is through keeping the infection as far away as possible. And that makes sense unless there's a greater power than the infection involved. It makes perfect sense, humanly speaking. But if there is a greater power involved, it goes out the window. And this is what they did not know. If you go back, Matthew 8, one of the things that happens in, in verse 2 there, it says, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched Touch the man, I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of leprosy. Very key there. Leprosy is, is the MRSA of our day. There's no cure. It's contagious. You're totally unclean physically. They believed morally you were unclean. They believed it was a judgment of, of God upon you. This man rushes up to Jesus, which is illegal for someone to do like that. It's forbidden for a, for, for a person who has leprosy to push their way, to get involved in the lives of people who don't. And he says to him, if you will, if you will, he shows that he knows, he knows all Jesus has to do is to want him clean. 
All right? No incantation that has to be said. He doesn't have to snap his fingers. He, he doesn't have to click his heels. There's no place like home. There's, you know, and follow any kind of ritual. There's nothing like that. All he's got to do is want it. He says, Jesus, if you want it, it'll happen. And what does Jesus do? It's very interesting. He touches him. He touches him first. Now, this is where, you know, I, I always imagine what would happen. I'm, 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 thinking, I'm thinking if I was Peter. I'd be like, oh, what is this guy doing here? He's unclean. He's going to get us all. If we get, if we, oh, this is going to be the worst. Oh, Jesus, don't tell. Oh, Jesus touched him. Crap. I don't know if Peter said crap. I don't know if he said that. But he said, krapos is the Greek, I think. Um, He goes, oh, man, I don't believe it. Jesus, we're going to have, he's healed. Oh, there's a greater power involved here. See, there's a greater power involved than the power to infect and become unclean. Why did he touch that man? He did not need to do that. And that man knew it because he wanted to make a point. He wanted them to see there's a greater power here than the power of uncleanness because I am cleanness incarnate. If you touch a leper, you have to go through a lengthy process to make sure you have not contracted the disease. But no, nobody quite thought through what would happen if you touched the leper and he got cured. So Jesus shatters this. Throughout history, when the infected have come in contact with the healthy, I mean, we look at the history of epidemics and pandemics in this world. Every time the infected come in contact with the healthy, the healthy get infected. And the unclean makes the clean become unclean every time. All religion is based on this. Work hard to become good. Good enough for heaven or, or whatever it is. Work hard so that you stay away from the, undef- the, the defiled and the unclean. And Jesus touches him and he says, he's saying, nothing can make this man unclean except I make him clean. Nothing can make me unclean. I have the power. I have the power. Anyone I come in contact with, anyone I have a relationship with, no matter how defiled you feel you are, no matter what your record is, no matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are of yourself, no matter what has been done to you, no matter how stained, no matter how how guilty, Jesus says, I make you clean. Instantly clean. Jesus is saying, my holiness will overcome your sin. You cannot defile me. Because I'm not just another religious leader telling you how obeying laws make you fit for God. I'm not another religious leader giving you do's and don'ts. And if you do the do's, you'll be in. And if you don't do the do's, you do the don'ts, you're out. He's saying, I make you fit on the spot. I am cleanliness. I am fitness incarnate. When you have a relationship with me, it works in reverse. And the clean begins to infect the unclean with cleanness. This is the opposite of how religion works in our world. And they're eating together. They're spending this time, quality time together. And what happens so much of the time with us, when we think about relationships, when we think about community, we pick the people we like We hang out with the people that we're most comfortable with. And we draw a line. 
Whether, whether, whether you're liberal or conservative, you draw a line. Whether you're secular or religious, you draw a line. It's a bright line. And on one side are the good people. One side are my people. On the other side, they're the bad people. They're the others. They're not my people. And we separate. And we worry that the others on the other side of that line, they'll make me unclean. They'll defile me. And Jesus refer, reverses the whole thing on the spot. When you receive the call through your love and through your community, the same thing can happen. We do not have to fear that. Third point, quickly, is the key to power. In the call of Matthew, he says, follow me. He calls him and he's followed. The power of that call, follow me. And the Pharisees struggled with this because he, Jesus went against so many of the things they believed. And that's why it's interesting in that passage, he says, go and learn. He says, you need to work on this. This needs to be figured out. Christianity is for thinking people, not, not blind belief. He says, this may take time. How do we get the power to reach out to people that we would normally not want to have anything to do with? People that were different from economically or socially or politically or morally or religiously. People we would have nothing to do with. And look at verse 13. Jesus says, here's the mark. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So go and learn. Think this through. Process this. Work on this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, the sacrificial system is not what I'm putting on you. All the requirements, all the holy days, all the special offerings, all the codes. They are not a mark of a relationship with God because a person who does not know God can follow those laws. He can, he can, he can give the offerings. He says, so what am I looking for? Mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy, the power of God flowing outward to other people, just like it did with Jesus. He says, I will give you that power. Mercy is this idea of love and service and compassion to people who are not like you. The people you find it most hard to care about. Because we can all have mercy to the people who are like us, right? My kids were little. We lived up in an area called Courthouse Green and a lot of townhouses all packed together. And every so often, the ice cream truck would come through. You know, you hear that you hear that music, and everybody get all excited. My kids would run over to me, and it was way back, you know, in the dark ages when you can actually get something for a dollar. And I would hand, I'd pull out my wallet, and I'd hand, here you go. Here you go, my kid. Here you go, buddy. Here you go. All right, girls, go get it. And, and then one time this hand sticks out, and I'm like, that's not a hand. I'm like, I said, you're not my kid. You're not my kid. I'm giving money to my kids. Go ask your mom or dad to give you a dollar. And this kid goes, she said no. I said, darn. Okay, don't tell anyone else that I'm giving. <laughs> and I was thinking through all this stuff, you know, and I, oh, I hate that I sometimes am that way. I'm thinking through, if I give this kid a dollar, every neighborhood kid in the whole place is going to come looking for a dollar. You know, and I'm just thinking of all the reasons why I should not give this kid a dollar. And then I realized my kids are going to eat an ice cream bar in front of this kid. Here you go. Go get one too. How do we have the power? How do we get the power to love, to serve, to witness, to be involved in the lives of people we're not like, people that we don't like? They're not us. Because it's nice to talk about. 
You know, when we get in a group like this, we're all at church, you know, so we kind of know the whole deal. You know, it's like the little Sunday school class where the teacher says, you know, what's brown and furry with a long bushy tail and eats acorns? And the kid goes, sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. You know, we, we, we all know the answer to everything is Jesus. We all know when I talk about showing mercy to people, when I talk about showing mercy to people, we're all like, yes, we should. Because we're, you know, who's going to stand up right now and say, no, I'm not for it, you know, and be the Grinch or something like that. I'm excited about that movie. But anyways, we're all like, the, it sounds nice and humble and wonderful. But when we get out in, into the world, how do we live it? How do we do it? Because everybody kind of agrees with it. But how do we cross those bright lines that we put out in our lives, lines that differentiate between people and the lines where we find it easy to mock the people on the other side of that line? The rich people look down on poor people, and poor people are envious of rich people and, and resent them, and it just, just keeps working. How do we do that? In verses 14 and 15, it says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and they will fast. So they're saying, We're keeping the laws. Why don't you? And Jesus says, He's telling them. He says, I just, this is so interesting to me. He's not trying to relate to his people like a king to his subjects, although that is true. He's not trying to relate to the people right then, at that moment, like a shepherd to the sheep, although that is true. He's talking about a relationship that is so permanent and so intimate, because if he's the bridegroom, who's the bride? Us. The church is the bride of Christ. He wants to have a relationship that's so permanent and so intimate that the closest analogy that he can think of is the analogy of a bridegroom and a bride on the wedding night. The culmination of anticipation, the excitement of a lifetime together, a love that is real and physical and intimate and powerful. And he's saying, this is why the clean laws are obsolete. But he says, when the bridegroom will be taken away, which that's a phrase that would resonate with many, many of the Jews because that's a phrase coming from Isaiah 53, verse 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And so here's the answer to the whole riddle, in a sense. How can he make the unclean clean? By taking our transgressions, by taking our diseases, by becoming a leper, the excluded, becoming the hated one. Our holiness comes to us because he was made our sins on the cross. And this is where the power then comes from. This relationship that's initiated at that call, it brings a power that only comes through him. We've been talking about this in 1 John. We talked about this earlier as we were looking at some other passages, that, that God has put this power in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We now can live. We now can be people who seek mercy, who live mercy. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so if, they, if it is his righteousness then, that we receive, there can be no more lines between people. Those lines have got to be gone. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I can't mock the other. I can't mock people. 
I can't belittle other people. I can't do it anymore because I'm a follower of Christ. There's no good people in, bad people out. Wherever the line is, it's gone. The people who know that they are sinners needing grace are in. The people who know they are hypocrites are the ones that are in. The people who know they are inconsistent are the ones that are in. And so now you don't have to go out into the world with this fragile, kind of self-achieved moral character or self-image that can be trashed so easily by other people. You move out into the world with the sense that I am now righteous in Christ. I am now free from those things. I, I have a purpose and a meaning in my life. I can do mercy. Why? Because I'm infected with Jesus. The greatest infection that ever was. I, and so... There's no other way to live life. There's no other way to live the life we were made for. Good things as well as bad, you know, they're caught by infection. If you stand near a fire, you get warm. That's a good thing. If you, if you get into the water, you get wet. That's, it's not a bad thing. And if you want joy and power and peace and eternal life, you have to get infected by Jesus. You have to allow the Holy Spirit because that's a part of the deal coming into your life because there's the ultimate source of power. I was talking a while back to a guy and he just told me, he says, I don't really, this, a lot of this stuff I don't believe it about Jesus. I just, I just like what he teaches and especially the Sermon on the Mount. I really, really like the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, really? I said, have you read it? And he said, well, yeah. I said, it's impossible. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible, right? You understand that, right? He's like, well, what do you mean? I said, it's because he's saying, he's not just saying don't commit murder. That's not so bad. He's saying don't even wish it on anyone. He's not saying don't lust, don't, don't commit adultery. He's saying don't lust. I said, that's impossible. Have you ever thought about that? And he was like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, kind of like I hadn't thought about it, but now that I'm thinking about it, you're right, it's impossible. I said, it's only through the power of God that we're going to be able to live like the Sermon on the Mount. You have to have somebody supernatural in your life because the Sermon on the Mount is supernatural obedience. You have to have someone supernatural in your life or you're a goner. I said, so, I mean, I'm not trying to insult you or anything, but... Man, if all, you're, if all you're doing is trying to live the Sermon on the Mount, you're, you're, you've lost. It's over. Just quit. It's not going to happen. We have to have that power that comes only from Jesus Christ. We have to remember, go and learn. Figure this out. It's a process that works in our lives as we become more and more like him. And the question then is, God says, I'm looking for people who are willing. Are you willing to let me grow you? Let me work in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's in it. Father, this isn't just fluff that makes us feel good and walk away. This is real life. We understand. We can be so much like the Pharisees and put people in, into categories and judge them. And you don't do that. That's the greatest thing in the world. You don't do that. Your forgiveness is full and free. And now we can experience that freedom that we sang about earlier. Father, I just pray for every person in this room. You know our hearts. And there may be some that haven't experienced that freedom, maybe have 
you know, accepted you, but are still not learn, seeing what it is. God, give them a glimpse of it. Give them a hunger for it. Maybe there's others that haven't even made that decision. Lord, I pray that even today they would. They'd seek someone out who could help them, counsel them, and pray with them. But in all of this, Lord, we thank you that you are active and working on this earth. You are alive, and your spirit is here and working. In Jesus' name.